Happy holidays from Ticklish Business. Ron hiatus till January 18th, so enjoy this episode from the Patreon Vault. We look forward to another year of fantastic shows in 2023. See you in January. How they can expect a woman to still have any mystery left for a man after living in a place like this for three days, I don't know. Darling, you don't need mystery. You've got something much better, something more alluring. What? Me. Well, you see, it's New Year's Eve, Aunt Catherine. The old battle axe. Shut up. Excuse me, Aunt Catherine. I was talking to the dog. This is Aunt Hattie. How are you? Don't mumble, young man. Don't mumble. How are you? She's deaf. You're telling me. Welcome back to Six Weeks with the Thin Man, our special series, looking at all six episodes of the Thin Man film series. I'm Kristen, joined once again by fantastic podcaster and author Emily Edwards. Emily, how are you? So good. How are you? I'm so happy. Everybody's talked about the first Thin Man. Now we're getting into the sequels. Yeah. The the meat of this whole thing. (laughs) Six dedication. Once we get to four and five, you and I are going to be a mess. It's going to be great. We're going to be so sick of this series by the end of it that it'll be just enough to keep us going till next Christmas when they inevitably come back again. Before we get into this, of course, I'd like to remind everybody it's Christmas time. So if you're looking for a gift, my book doesn't come out till March 7th, but you can always pre-order it. But have you read the book wherever you get your books. Emily, though, you have a book as well. I'd love for you to let us know how it connects to The Thin Man. Look at you. Excellent segue. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, I have a new mystery series out. It's called The Girlfriend in Mystery Series. The very catchy first title for the first novel called Viviana Valentine Gets Her Man. It is a 1950s, very much Dashiell Hammett-inspired sleuthing series. Think of a gender-flipped Nick and Nora, and we can go it from there. I love the concept. I'm eagerly awaiting the chance to sit down and actually read. That's what the holidays are for. (laughs) If you listened last week with episode one, looking at 1934's The Thin Man, we're now jumping forward two years to the first sequel, 1936's After The Thin Man. Now you might say, clearly Dashiell Hammett wrote this or was involved in some way. You would be wrong. There is no sequel to the book. Hammett tried to write some sequels did not work out. And he tried to dabble with the screenplay, did not work out. Dashiell was not, much like F. Scott Fitzgerald, really the most reliable when it came to book writing and screenplay writing. Their true talent lied in drinking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is funny because Hammett had a long-running series in the Continental Op, but those are short stories. I'm not sure if you've ever read them, but they are very much like, Haha, kicker at the end kind of short stories. They don't have the same oomph as a full length novel. Most of the original team from the first film is back. Director W.S. Van Dyke, you have Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who wrote the script for the first film. And of course, Bill Powell and Myrna Loy are back as Nick and Nora. The pair ended the first movie by going back home to San Francisco. And now they are back for a quiet New Year's. That's what they hope for. Unfortunately, Nora's cousin Selma, played by Alyssa Landy, is involved in missing husbands, possibly murdered, and it forces not only Nora to hang out with her family, who are very wealthy and snobby, 
But Nick, who is just not down with the wealth to get involved in another mystery. I've seen this movie several times at this point. This is probably the only sequel that I've seen multiple times. I said this at the end of the last episode. This might be a better movie. It's longer, which I don't necessarily like that it's almost two hours. The original was a lean 30 minutes and that included an extended Christmas party sequence. Everything feels just a little bit too extended in this movie. But where all of the characters from the first film felt like they just coalesce into one big suspect ball, some distinction and some additional characterization into who they are, especially I love Penny Singleton, who plays Polly, the nightclub dancer, who has one of my favorite lines in this movie. You have a bunch of other characters that, yes, definitely are hard to suss out. Jesse Ralph as Aunt Catherine's really good. She's just a curmudgeon. Sam Levine as Abrams the cop has a bit more heft to him because he's a wisecracker. Characters, even though they're so plentiful, feel like they are allowed to actually have personalities this time as opposed to the first film. Yeah, they're actually all different types of people instead of just three of the same type of persons. I'm saying in the first movie, you have three dark-haired no-good Nicks, four blonde women who are in love with those no-good Nicks. Really hard to tell them apart. Whereas at least in this, the closest thing you get to a ball of characters is just all the old people that Nora is related to. But also that totally explains why Nora is so freaking in love with Nick, because she's just like, if I go home, I have to spend all of my holidays with eight people over the age of 75. And it's miserable. And he's just like, thank God I have this lifeline. And my cousin Selma is caught in this situation. She can't leave. She's further underneath the thumb of Aunt Catherine. And oh my God, I have to help Selma because if I don't, nobody will. When we talked in the first film about how that movie dealt with wealth. It's 1934 when the first movie came out, knee deep in the Depression. By 36, the Depression was winding down. It was, I don't want to say pretty much over, but the worst was behind us. Walking into World War II by this point. There feels like the frivolity is gone. The biggest change is the lack of drinking. Mm -hmm. You see Nick drink at the beginning on the train, and then that's it. These characters barely have time to get drunk and have a hangover. There's so much that is filling their day that they don't have that. So much of that is subtext of the fact that he's around these rich fuddy-duddies, that Nick wants to be out partying. But if he's around Aunt Catherine, she's going to let him have one sherry. There's this wonderful scene after the dinner party where he's in a room with all the snoring old men. And while that scene is hilarious, favorite bit of it is his hand is on the decanter the entire time that he's having this one-sided conversation with the snoring old men. And you can tell that he is just drinking straight from the crystal. He's just like, this sucks. (laughs) It says so much because in the first film, they were drinking because it was fun. Now, of course, we all know about the horrors of alcoholism and I always roll my eyes when people talk about, oh, Nick and Nora Charles were alcoholics. Mm -mm. Drinking was different in the 1930s than it is now. You never got the feeling that Nick and Nora Charles were alcoholics. They were social drinkers. I was a wine and spirits writer for a really long time, and people still talk about prohibition. What a weird time it was. And I have differing feelings about it. If you're drinking in prohibition, but you're drinking actual booze, you're probably not an alcoholic. The alcoholic were the people who were distilling furniture shavings and water in order to get drunk. 
there's a whole different class and lifestyle delineation for who had a drinking problem in Prohibition and who didn't. In that first film, they were drinking for fun and frivolity. It's a moment of celebration. I mean, it's Christmas. Mm -hmm. That sequence, especially, Nick has to drink in order to deal with the fact that these people are so damn boring. Where the first film had that extended Christmas party sequence, I love that we get that extended sequence of him having to deal with the family, picking up the guy's hearing aid and being like, at the sound of the chime, he is just a guy that is so desperate for fun. He just doesn't want to be confined by the parameters of her family, which is very confining. And as the movie shows us, poor Selma is completely, completely trapped by Nora's family and their rules and their expectations. It's understandable why Nora would not only find Nick attractive, but if this was a relationship that was more of a drama, why she would marry him to escape what she's mm -hmm. dealing with. If anything, you get that maybe she's married him because it's a way for her to have fun with her family too, because she knows they dislike him so much. It gives this air of where there's less sexual innuendo that for me is the biggest transition between the first mm -hmm. and the second movie there's far less awareness that these two are definitely having sex and having a lot of fun but there is this forbidden innuendo element of the fact that these two are clearly married to each other because they get turned on by the fact that her family despises him you get the real understanding that this is a marriage they're flirty and they're fun and they're sexy in the first movie but this is when you're just like, marriage is like dealing with the fact that everybody's family fucking sucks. You really get the depth of the fact that they are in this together. They are a unit. She has incredible respect for him. She says at the beginning, we're not going to Aunt Catherine's. She treats you horribly. And the only reason they're going is because Selma needs her help. And she, she turns to him after she has this phone call with Aunt Catherine, who's berating her and being rude to her. And she's just like, but Nikki, you like Selma. We have to help Selma. I know you don't want to do this. And I wouldn't ask you to if this wasn't for my cousin who really, really needs help. And Nick doesn't argue. I don't think there's a whole lot of dialogue after that. He's just like, yeah, you're right. I have to do this for you because you're asking me to help your cousin. I know Catherine wants me there to solve a problem, but I'm doing it for you because you're asking. We really understand that Nick and Nora, the ampersand is part of their name. They are a unit. They are together. And it becomes like a really healthy adult marriage in this movie. Makes up for what I start to notice with the second movie, which is this gradual decoupling of mm -hmm. Nick and Nora in the sense that they spend more time apart as yes, the series do. progresses. And it starts with this movie where she's firmly with the family trying to solve the crime from that angle. And Nick is the one going out and right. having to investigate and be more of a man of action. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that by the 1936, the Hays Code was in full effect. So the drinking is Nick's. The costumes are still a little sexy. Nora's got that low back when she mm -hmm. goes to visit Aunt Catherine, but the costumes are far less opulent. We're slowly creeping into the 1940s where more conservative outfits yeah. were coming into vogue, the domestic roles are starting to be more defined. She is yeah. less a Jean Harlow that is her husband's equal and more of a voice of reason, which Nora mm -hmm. will, I think, become as we get into the subsequent sequels. As much as I think this movie does a lot better 
I do wish it had more scenes of them together away from the family because so much of what makes them memorable as a couple, as a marriage, like you mentioned, is that they do have this history and this desire to be alone. Part of what makes the ending so funny of this second movie before the big reveal, which we'll talk about, is that Nick says, do you hear that? We're alone. There's literally no one around. He's really happy about that because at the end of the day, the person that he wants to spend his time with is his wife. It always bugs me a little bit that the movie is trying to, I don't want to say push an agenda, but is falling into that trap that comes with the 1930s into the 40s of keeping the characters in their respective domestic spheres. In their separate beds. Absolutely. Always. (laughs) Always in their separate beds. The first probably, what, 15 minutes of the movie are them getting off a train and she's packing up her lingerie. She's taking all these lacy, silky nighties and she's throwing them into a suitcase because they have to disembark the train. And one of her lines is, how is a woman expected to have any mystery if they live like this for three days? And I'm just like, girl, we all know that your husband has seen your underpants before. Even if you were in the most staid marriage, in the most conservative household in all of 1930s America, your husband has seen your underwear. It's just part of life. But they have to put in that this is unusual. This is titillating. This is not okay. This is not appropriate. It also is closing a door. It's very deliberate considering Nora's arc in this movie. She's putting aside the sexy single woman, even married woman Mm -hmm. outfits. It's almost saying goodbye to the pre-code world, but also goodbye to her as a sexual being. Yeah, absolutely. The first time we see them laying in bed together, we have a similar scene in the first film where you're getting their repartee of she wakes them up in the middle of the night and who knows what they're doing as they're ordering breakfast. But here in this movie, she's asking him, do you have any pictures of you as a baby? What did you look like as a baby? And then, of course, the ending, which culminates with the reveal that they're going to have a baby. So it almost plays like we're giving her her big character arc, which is Laura Charles preparing for motherhood. And to have the drama be family drama, the people in the first movie whose murder they have to solve are basically strangers. Nick hasn't seen them in a decade. Whereas this, you get the feeling that Aunt Catherine asks them to dinner every single Friday night when they're in San Francisco. And that's why Nick hates it so much. This domestic sphere, it's very entertaining because of the characterizations of the people involved and the politics of rich people trying to hide their dirty laundry. But that's exactly what Nora is doing in the first scene where she's a rich person who's hiding her dirty laundry. You know, she's like, oh my gosh, we're back in San Francisco. I can't be carefree and the sexy young girl like I am in New York City because the only people who know me there know me as Nick's girlfriend or wife or as a society girl. In San Francisco, I have a family aura to uphold. And so she's hiding all of her dirty laundry. It's also incredibly important that they get to their house in San Francisco and they open up the door and everybody who's there partying doesn't know Nick and Nora. And so you get the juxtaposition of the people who see Nick and Nora as party people don't know the real Nick and Nora. The people who know the real Nick and Nora are these staid people dressed all in black who can't have scandal. And you're just like, wait a second, what happened to the cool people in the first movie? (laughs) We talked about this when we talked about Frankenstein. 
the theatrical experience, because in 1934, that was your only chance to see The Thin Man. If you didn't see it in a theater, odds are it was going to be far harder for you to see it again. And two years passes. So how do you remind people of these characters that they might have forgotten about in two years? Well, you take them to a new location and you have them go to a place where people don't know them. And then you can set the tone, which is something that I love about classic film because we don't have that today. Now there's a wiki page you can catch up on all the Marvel stuff. You don't need to have a character in a movie show up and lay out who these characters are for you. But the other thing that I really notice about this film is not just the sense of new location, but also the fact that by this point, Bill Powell and Myrna Loy themselves were huge stars. The first film's success was not anticipated. The Thin Man was presumed to be a B picture. The fact that it blew up meant that this movie was now an A picture and its stars are now A-list stars. So you have to have them playing, unfortunately, by A-list star rules. Myrna Loy is now everybody's dream woman and she's got to be classy and appropriate. By this point, too, we talked about this in the previous film, people really wanted Powell and Loy to be together. And they were very Mm -hmm. close friends off screen, but they did not have any romantic inclinations to them. And one of the stories I loved was they actually showed up in San Francisco to the St. Francis Hotel where they filmed on location. The hotel management called them Mr. and Mrs. Powell. They thought they were married. Unfortunately, Bill Powell was with his girlfriend at the time, Jean Harlow, who was very upset because their relationship was not publicly known and they were not married. So they couldn't exactly proclaim that this was not true. So Jean Harlow and Myrna Loy ended up staying in the hotel room together and Bill Powell got the crappier single room. Jean Harlow and Myrna Loy became very good friends, but we talked last episode about fandom and the toxicity of it that we see now. To know that in 1936, you have two actors that they're good friends, but they're not ever going to happen. Every place they went to, somebody was demanding, why aren't you guys together? That had to be not just annoying and offensive to the people they were actually with at the time. Knowing now what we know, studios could have made that happen if if they had wanted to. How many sham relationships were in the gossip rags back then? They were just like, no, literally, we're just friends. Stop. I had no idea that he was dating Jean Harlow at the time. Could you imagine not being able to stay in a hotel room with your boyfriend and he has to pretend he's dating his co-star? Oh my God, what a horrible mess. At least now you can shack up with someone. I can only imagine if we had social media, the amount of emails and tweets and direct messages that Jean Harlow would have gotten from people telling her she's a horrible human being for keeping Nick and Nora apart. How dare she? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, that's brutal. I love Myrna Loy. She's probably one of my favorite classic film actresses. I just think she has this amazing screen presence. She's just always fun, even when she gets older and they put her in the dowdy characters. She always has a very vivacious, bubbly, smart, alecky aspect to her. And I just really, really appreciate that about her. And William Powell, he's always a debonair man. It's a really lovely characterization of these people that I hope is relatively true to who they were, you know better than I do. Myrna Loy said she was not Nora Charles, but she did have a lot of appreciation for who she was as a woman 
based on what I've read, she definitely was a very independent minded actress who knew what she wanted and yet was able to traverse the studio system with relatively little scandal. I don't know anybody that had a bad word to say about Myrna Loy. Bill Powell, much like Myrna Loy, married multiple times and could not seem to make relationships with women work. The sad fact is knowing that him and Jean Harlow started around this time, many people say he never really got over her death, even mm-hmm. though he did marry, that she was definitely one of his great loves, continued to work well into the 1950s and stayed relatively youthful looking. There's a great story. Is it Lauren Bacall? I think it was when they did How to Marry a Millionaire. She's got a great story about working opposite Bill Powell and she has to slap his face and she Mm -hmm. slaps his face and the whole left side of his face drops. She's all, and I thought that he had a stroke. She's all like, I started to get very, very concerned. And they were like, no, because Bill Powell was trying to look younger, they did the instant facelift where they would put the strings oh, and the, oh, the, the tape. tape. Yeah. And she hit him hard enough that all of that came undone. Came undone. <laughs> Which I'd like to think that Bill Powell took that in stride. I'm sure he did. <laughs> but we are beating around the bush of the fact that this movie has the youngest Jimmy Stewart I've ever seen on screen. So we got to give Jimmy Stewart his own section of this yes. review because I am always fascinated by the fact that Jimmy Stewart was in this movie, one of his earlier films. He plays David, the attorney, that if you watch the first movie, you know who's the killer in the first movie. The second movie does the same thing. Different motivation, but yes. same thing. But yes. he plays the attorney who is in love with Selma, but of course Selma throws him over for another guy who is now the dead guy of this whole movie, and people think Selma did it. We've talked before on this podcast about Jimmy Stewart being one of those actors that we always feel is very asexual. And it's very bizarre to see him be a sexually attractive character. And I think a lot of that was during this time period, the 1930s. He did a lot of romantic comedies and dramas where there's something there. I would have never told you in my life that I would be (laughs) into Jimmy Stewart. 1930s Jimmy Stewart, he could get it. He's 28. He's such a baby in this movie. And of course, thinking about the ages of actors and the expectations of masculinity, you're thinking to yourself, 28 is a grown ass man. But again, you're looking at him and you're like, oh, baby face, Jimmy Stewart, you adorable baby boy. He's hungry for Selma. He wants this girl bad and he will do anything in order to get her. They were engaged once. She overthrew him for her new husband, Robert, who's a no good Nick. Robert's now fooling around on her with a nightclub dancer. It's complicated, as all Thin Man movies are. I can't stand Jimmy Stewart. For some reason, I just don't like him as an actor. For this one, it makes sense because I have a real problem when Jimmy Stewart tries to play an everyman because he just doesn't have an everyman accent or manner of speaking. That Jimmy Stewart manner of speaking, you only get if you are an upper crust boy. And I just don't understand how he became Don't get me wrong. Harvey is one of my favorite movies of all time. I get him as Elwood P. Dowd. It's fine. But by and large, I don't ever see him as an everyman person. And so in this one, where he's upper crust, that collar that is attached to his shirt that is into his chin the entire time, those 1930s detachable starched collars. And I'm just like, oh, no, that's what you were born to play. You're kind of an insufferable dick. Jimmy Stewart, his aw shucks persona is so ingrained in us as filmgoers, that to go back and watch his early films, you miss out on a lot of the intensity and passion that he had in some of his early films that I think culminates with Philadelphia Story, which I maintain 
Jimmy Stewart is at his ultimate DTF persona when he's giving his hearth fires and Holocaust speech. That is that's the horny... only time I've ever that... been like, ooh, Jimmy Stewart. Exactly. That's a that horny speech. That's, that's a yeah. horny speech right there. I dig it. But here, what I noticed rewatching it recently is how much I don't want to say that David is an incel. How mm-hmm. much David has a lot of the entitlement that we've seen from a lot of the MRA, the toxic masculinity, that's what the word I'm looking for, that we've seen nowadays. And at this point, the movie's available. You should be watching it to follow along. You find out that David is the murderer. On the surface, you're like, Jimmy Stewart's a murderer? What? But to really divorce him from his persona, I want to put a pin in that because I want to come back to it. To watch David give that speech at the end of the movie where he says, He's essentially giving that speech. I'm a good guy. Mm-hmm. I'm a good guy. I'm smart. I'm awesome. Damn it. Why don't I have a woman? Why don't I have yeah. you? Because I deserve you. I'm owed you. I might not be able to kill you, but I'll watch you hang. He really wants to destroy her life. So at the end of the movie, when that's not going to happen, he says, I'm going to kill you, but don't worry. I'm going to kill myself. Mm-hmm. So that way, even in death, they're united by the press, by all of these other things. And it's just so, I hate to say, timely and relatable because he is espousing stuff that women have been hearing and they're still hearing for decades. Yeah, and to juxtapose it against Nick and Nora, who is a very loving, respectful, mutually respectful couple, he stops just short of going, you whore, how could you do this to me? How could you show your own agency? We have all these scenes leading up to it where Selma, when she finds out that Robert, her husband, is cheating on her, running away from her, and she's just like, I hate him. But every time there's a scene where Robert comes back and Selma is sleeping and he comes to their room and she is livid with him because she's like, you've disappeared for three days. I have no idea where you've been. You've been driving me crazy. I know you're cheating on me. I know you're leaving me. She's still in a sexual thrall for Robert. She gets out of bed. She runs to him. At some point, he grabs her by the arm and turns her around and he goes to kiss her. And of course, you're watching this as a modern woman and you're going, hi, this is abuse. Please do not do this. And he goes to kiss her and she kisses him back because Robert has a sexual hold over her that poor David just doesn't have. Her family pushed her to marry Robert. They didn't want her to marry David for whatever reason. Poor Selma is caught between a rock and a hard place, but she goes with her her loins and goes with Robert and she's married to him and she loves him. She's got a sexual thing for Robert, which she never has for David. And David is like, I'm going to ruin your life because you didn't ever want to bang me even when we were engaged. Wow. Ah, God (laughs) almighty. Thank God he didn't have Twitter. There will be so many people telling him, you've been friend zoned, man. We feel for you. On 4chan talking about being red pill. The concept of star persona, because there's that other element of it. Jimmy Stewart, Elwood P. Dowd, Mr. Smith goes to Washington playing a killer. That is very, very weird. He did not do that. To watch him in this, I came to this movie after... It's a Wonderful Life and George Bailey and all of these other characters that he played and to watch him play a murderer and the fact that he didn't do it again after this movie. I would just love to know 
whether he didn't do it again because it hurt him. Did they tell him, don't ever do this again? Now that you're A-list, it's all dramas and good guys. I would love to know about that thought process because to have him go complete 360 from what we know early in his career, you watch everything later and he didn't play parts like that. I'd be interested to know if that was a decision that he made or if it was imposed on him. Because a lot of people that watch this movie, when I show it to them and I don't tell them at the end, and they see Jimmy Stewart, they're like, oh, he's going to get the girl. He's a good guy. And then when it turns out that he's the killer, they're always shocked. This is old Hollywood. There's a predictability to it. If anything, that might be the most ingenious element of it. To compare it to a modern film, I know a lot of people talking about something like Barbarian, where Bill Mm -hmm. Skarsgård in that movie... People are coming to it having seen it. Pennywise shows up at your Airbnb. You need to run. It doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. He's the good guy. You need to run. So we still go into certain movies with this air of knowing who these people are based on past roles. That works in this movie's favor because if anything, it reminds you what we as women all too commonly know, which is you can't see who a good guy or a bad guy is. It could be the guy that you dated. It could be somebody you live with that works to make the film, unfortunately, very timely and relatable because it is a guy that we assume we know. Also, one of the things that this movie does that the previous movie didn't do was they play with race in this one. You are in San Francisco, and it's not like people of other races didn't live in New York City in the 1930s, but they just ignored them in that one. And this one, so much of the movie revolves around a Chinese restaurant. And so they are playing with the very San Francisco and West Coast prejudice against Chinese people. Listen, I'm not going to say that the racial representation in this movie is good or kind in any way. It is incredibly racist. It's from the mid-1930s. But they are actively playing with the fact that, oh, the bad guys must either be the Chinese restaurant owner or the man who's in business with the Chinese restaurant owner, because that's the only people who could be up to no good. Certainly not Indiana milk toast white as the driven snow Jimmy Stewart with the posh accent and the starched collars. He's a lawyer. He can't be bad. Clearly, it has to be either the people who are in business with the Chinese people actually Chinese people, or work at the seedy nightclub. They are playing with both race and monetary and class dynamics in a way that they didn't actually do in the first one at all. We talked about this with the first film, is how Nick represents law and order without being associated with the cops. Having someone like Sam Levine, who is not like Nat Pendleton's character, the cop character from the first film. Nat Pendleton's performance is Gild in the 34 version, is very much... A typical cop. Yeah, I am your Irish-American cop. Yeah, Yes, square jaw, burly guy, a total poster child for the police academy. Sam Levine, though, is a scrapper. The fact that he was a Jewish performer, there's this element of being an outsider as well, which he meets when he goes in and starts talking to Aunt Catherine. The rich people blow him off. They cast him aside. She calls him six different Jewish last names that have Abrams in them. And he's just like, oh, my God, all I'm trying to do is make sure that your daughter is actually upstairs and actually not being abused by her psychiatrist that you hired for her. And you are just being an anti-Semitic bitch to my face. Oh, my God, what am I supposed to do here? There's this level playing field between him and Nick where they can act in concert together. 
where they're both outsiders in this world of wealthy white Gentile society. When Nick is interacting with the criminals, which he did in the first film, it takes on more resonance here. Like you mentioned, the Asian characters that pop up, especially at the end where Nora says to the one guy, I thought you said he sent your brother up. You hated him. And the guy was like, no, I didn't like my brother. I liked his girl. Oh, so you just put your brother into the penal system in order to get his lady. More importantly, it reminds us of the fact that Nick is not the cops, that he understands that every criminal is a person, that there are dynamics at play that are far more nuanced than good and evil. I can't think of too many characters in movies of all time that are as class fluid as Nick Charles is. And even though when he gets to the upper, upper, upper crust of Nora's incredibly dynastic, incredibly wealthy family, he has that scene where he picks up the aunt's hearing aid and goes, that's the tone, the time is, and Nora's wax the hearing aid out of his hand. But in the bottom corner, one of the other upper crust family members is laughing his ass off because he thinks it's really funny. Even when you're in the incredibly staid, waspish, white, white, white America, there's someone who's still charmed by Nick Charles. He has this incredible social fluidity that Nora has to an extent. She's adopted a little bit of it. It's certainly harder for her because women were property still legally at this point. And her father died. That's how she has the money. She didn't necessarily have liquid funds when they first got married, but then she had an inheritance and now they have more money than Delaware. They didn't necessarily get married because she had lots of spending money. He knew she was in a rich family. That being said, Nora does have a certain social fluidity, just not the same extent that Nick does. But the way she handles herself in prison and with the cops in this movie is one of my favorite bits in all of Nick and Nora. What I love about this is we're slowly transitioning out of screwball into Mm -hmm. film noir is that you started to get the tropes of the noir element. There's definitely more playing with the cops, which the big sleep does in Mm -hmm. a way that is not nearly as funny as it is in this movie. But even something like Penny Singleton's character, Polly, being this wisecracking dance hall girl that you would get in so many of these film noirs. She has my favorite line of this entire movie, very similar to the man act comment Mm -hmm. from the first film where Nick is revealing to everybody who the killer is. And he's pointing out that whoever wrote this note is trying to pretend to be illiterate. And she shouts out, no, my parents were married. I love that line. In a movie that does not have nearly as much innuendo as the previous film does, I love that, again, we got time to throw in just one more sex joke. Nora gets thrown in the tank at some point. And so she's in women's prison. And then Nick goes to pick her up and she's with all of these girls who are sex workers or caught drunk in public. And the matron is leading Nick back to the tank. And she goes, is she the one who's in for the fan dance? And Nick goes, well, if she is, she's been holding out on me. That's one of my favorite movie lines of all time. This was the first and I think only time the movie was nominated for a screenplay. Oh, It was nominated, ironically, for Best Adapted Screenplay, even though it's not adapted from any work. <laughs> Plus, you talk about adapted from the first movie, which yeah. I don't think we consider that anymore. But it was nominated alongside the story of Louis Pasteur, Dodsworth, 
Robert Riskin's Mr. Deeds goes to town and my man Godfrey. Emily, do you know what won that year? I assume my man Godfrey, but I'm not positive. It was the story of Louis Pasteur. Oh, my God. Because, you know, comedies can't win anything. So so here's the thing. From what I was reading is that this was one of the years that adapted an original were combined into one category because Uh, this is an original story. So it's not adapted from anything unless we're talking about Louis Pasteur's life. The Paul Muni starring movie about Louis Pasteur trying to advance microbiology. Riveting cinema, I'm sure. Very riveting cinema. Not to irk the Paul Muni fans, but I don't get him. That feels very on par for the Oscars. I want to touch on the ending. They're back on the train. They're going to travel, right? They're talking about going to parts unknown. I appreciate that it ends on this air of ambiguity because I'm assuming that they didn't know that they were going to come back. I don't know. It's not enough to have them go back to New York. Now it's just like they're in the wind. They're free spirits. But this movie that starts with Nora Charles having to put her lingerie away, they're about to go on this trip to God knows where like free spirited young married people do. And Nick Charles finds out that she's knitting not so inconspicuously, baby socks. And the implication is, is that they're going to have a child. I'm curious what note the movie ends on, because for me, I don't have children, so maybe I'm just being a dark-hearted cynic, but they were going to go on this great vacation and travel the world, and now it's like, oh, going to have a baby, so we're just going to have to give up those dreams. (laughs) This is definitely one of my first awarenesses of, oh, the Hays Code kicked in because married people cannot just be married without a kid. There has to be family values. I am happily married. I'm never having kids. So the idea that first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. It's so freaking Victorian. The Hays Code is like, ah, 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 you can't get away with this. We know you've been sleeping in the same train car for the past couple of days. So Now we know she has to be pregnant, although they didn't know about fetal alcohol syndrome back then. I think that's another reason why they cut back on the drinking, because they were like, married women don't drink. Good married women have babies at the end. We'll get into it once we start getting into the third and fourth movies. But Nora, I feel really bad for her. First of all, Nora is not a girl who would know how to knit. And then all of a sudden she knows how to knit baby booties, which is utterly ridiculous. It's not really fair to Nora. It's really not. To the extent that rich women are saddled with infants, which is not a lot in this day and age, but she's got to always think about the kid now. And it's such a freaking anchor for her character. It completely takes her out of the mystery. So the audience, a modern audience, us as modern 2022 women watching this movie say, well, she's not going to be part of the Mm -hmm. mystery. Subsequent movies just are not going to have her there, which women of the 1930s, late 1930s would have probably felt differently about it. But considering that Nick and Nora are such a package deal, how do you keep these two connected considering the fandom that wants them together if we're going to introduce a child? Yeah, it's like any superhero movie where all of a sudden someone's left at headquarters and you're like, oh, come on. Nora should not be left at headquarters. She's so smart. She's so vivacious. She gets people to say things by flirting with them in ways that Nick normally doesn't in the first two movies. In traditionalist fashion, you're going, oh, yay, Nora's having a baby. That's so lovely. They're a real couple. As movie watchers, aren't you just going, hey. We know what comes with that. 
Yeah, kind of sucks. <laughs> I would be all for watching Bill Powell flirt with suspects. <laughs> Every single no good Nick where he's like, I sent you up the river and you look handsome tonight. I stick by what I said I, after The Thin Man is just as good, if not maybe slightly better. I think the writing's a bit tighter than the first film. Jimmy Stewart alone, his presence adds some gravitas to it. It's understandable why this is often considered the best Thin Man seat. I don't like it as much as the first Thin Man movie, but I agree that it's a better mystery movie. They actually treat it like a mystery, whereas in the first one, they treat it like a comedy with a mystery added to it. As someone who writes mystery novels with a comedic edge to them, I totally love the second movie. But as someone who likes watching screwball comedies, especially 1930 screwball is like one of my favorite times of movie making. They'll probably prefer the first one. Listener, you can email us or send us your thoughts through all social media platforms. Let us know, do you prefer After the Thin Man more or less or the same as the original Thin Man? I'm excited to see how we jump forward three years later to the next Thin Man, another Thin Man, appropriately enough. It's interesting how the titles are throughout this series. The third one just seems like it's got the simplest and laziest title of all of them. They wanted to go, oh, Jesus, there's another one. That's going to close out Tickwish Business for today. Of course, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this, please be sure to go head over to the main feed and listen to our latest episode. Reviews matter, so leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, if that's still a thing, at ticklish underscore biz, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at ticklish biz. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. If you're listening to this, we thank you for helping keep our ticklish biz HQ lights on by supporting our Patreon. Please remember I have my book out, but have you read the book March 7th? You can pre order it wherever you buy books. Emily, where can fans find you online? And please let them know about your upcoming book. I am across pretty much all socials at the handle Ms. Emily Edwards. If you are so inclined to read another comedic mystery novel, I have a mystery series that's trickling out over the next year or so. The first one is called Viviana Valentine Gets Her Man. It's available where all books are sold. It's in digital, it's in audio, it's in all sorts of formats. And I would be very, very happy if you picked it up. You can buy it on Amazon, but I would prefer if you went to IndieBound or bookshop.org and picked it up from one of your locals as they are deserving of all of your help. We will be back on December 16th with a look at 1939's Another Thin Man. Till then.